Cause there's still a lot of drinks that I ain't drunk Lots of pretty thoughts that I ain't thunk Oh yeah Lord, there's still so many lonely girls In this best of all possible world As both uh, Candide and in this case Mr. Chris Christopherson remind us It is in fact the best of all possible worlds Hello, I'm Carson Sestouli This is Fangraphs Audio And in this edition, this Friday edition of Fangraphs Audio We celebrate our existence in this The best of all possible worlds By, or I should say we, the people of Knockgraphs Celebrated by providing the listenership The Fangraphs Audio listenership With something called a Knockgraphs staff meeting Because it of course would be absurd To record, mix, render, and publish An actual Knockgraphs staff meeting and because, in fact, there is no such thing as a Knockraft staff meeting, that is not precisely what follows. What does follow is a conversation with Knockraft's contributors, Robert J. Bauman and Patrick Dubuque. They serve as the able interlocutors on what is to follow. In that spirit, I'd like to deliver a note to those listeners who've come to this podcast looking for the sort of crack analysis that's available in the electronic pages of Fangraphs. That is not what you'll find here. Instead, you will find occasionally navel-gazing meditations on topics germane to the mostly learned baseball fan. Patrick, of course, is the saddest contributor to Knockrafts, while Robert J. Bauman is its most sincere. I ask both of them questions. They ask each other questions, while the whole time uh, we're, of course, asking the world questions, what it is to be a mostly learned baseball fan. It's Fangraphs Audio. It is the Knockrafts staff meeting edition of Fangraphs Audio, and it begins right now. Generally productive as opposed to um, destructive, um, <clears throat> because they they force you to sort of focus your attentions, um, but they can also be challenging. For example, I know Patrick, we actually had a phone conversation recently because you have the difficulty, Patrick, of um, having a team allegiance to a miserable team. Yes. And occasionally, I think it's hard for you to separate your interest in the in the the game itself and the potential of the game, uh, it's hard to, di- to divorce your interest in that from um, the team for which you, the team with the team that you support, which is, um, which abides in misery. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I, I have yet to transcend. Right. I look at it as a kind of a Buddhist goal one of these days to finally lift myself from the earthly clutches of the Seattle Mariners and, and be able to enjoy life. Right. I haven't gotten there yet. You haven't gotten there yet. Do you think there's anything that would release? Do you think, a, for example, a World Series victory would release you? Um, I actually think it's 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 totally within my control. It's 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 a personal failing rather than a failing of the Mariners and their their corporate subsidiaries. I think it's just I have to actually watch baseball. Like, I, I I'm horrible in the sense that I I write about baseball and I love baseball, but I don't actually watch it that much. I don't have cable. I have MLB TV, but I forget that I have it and then go months without watching it. Um, And so I can't... What I envy you for, Carson, is is that you can watch these Texas League players and, and, and actually enjoy it, whereas I'll watch a high school or college game and I'll think, these guys aren't that good. Right, yeah. I can't keep it still the essence of it. Yeah, I guess That's for, just my fault. Right, no, right. And I guess for me, uh, the exciting thing is the moment, is the act of discovery. And it just so happens that the amount of Major League, the amount of Major League Baseball players is um, less than the amount that, you know, a reasonably intelligent person, it's less than the amount of, the, of players that a reasonably intelligent person or one with a decent enough memory who spends enough time trying uh, to acquaint himself with all those players. Um, I guess what I'm saying is like the human hard drive can fit more than whatever 30 times 25 players on it. So what is that? Six, seven hundred, eight hundred, seven hundred something players, right? So um, you could there are more names to fit in there, and I just want to. My goal is to constantly be at capacity so far as that's concerned. Um, and it's not like it's not. It's a sort of goal that comes from within. It's not something that I've stated aloud or that I think is desirable. Um, to other people that I have that. Uh, it's just that 
like you know one has a certain capacity for a certain number of names and that's uh and i whatever um without trying to that's something that i seek to to do yeah and i get that and i i have that same drive it seems like mine though instead of working outwards and and I want to say downwards, that's got a connotation, but my, I tend to go backwards instead, and so when I when I, my hard drive has more room, I go for Joe, Joe Nuxel or Sam Rice, or I go that direction and start going backwards to the past. Well, one of the things that's difficult for me, and um, maybe you could explain this to me in a way that's um, to do it, is um, how you think about it, is making players of the past exciting. I see people do it, uh, I see people do it um, to do it well. I think people in Knockraps do it well. Um, but I think that I maybe am not necessarily great at doing it because there is a lot of baseball writing, um, that is baseball writing about the past, that makes the past seem dustier than I already assume it is. Um, and I'm curious about rediscovering the thing so it feels new. I've been able to do it personally with some players. For example, Dazzy Vance. Dazzy Vance yeah. is, a, is a player who essentially like, had um had twice his his strikeout rate was basically twice the strikeout rate of anyone else in the league at his time which is something that for me is exciting to think about is that there was a player who was striking out players at roughly you know twice the rate of um of his contemporaries which is a thing that means something to me in the present day and also his name is Dazzy da- something about the name Dazzy Vance um seems exciting but I'm curious as to um, and this is a question that I extend to both of you. I'm talking, I guess, to Patrick more directly. Um, how you're able to make players of the past have that, have a, like to have their narratives or something, or the sort of image of them in your mind seem um, modern and exciting? Well, um, the first thing I would do is make things up about them. Right, so fabrication, um, ecstatic, ecstatic, yeah, fabrication. ecstatic truths. Yeah, and, and to project pieces of myself onto these ball players who are safer because they're not still around. I mean, they're still alive, but but uh, that, from from my psychological standpoint, is easier to do. I think the other thing, probably the the less facetious answer, would be that um, going back and looking at past ball players, and you know. From a disclosure standpoint, I have access through being a student. I have access to all these old newspapers, like the one you you used for a piece, Carson, a couple couple days ago. But I, I think that stuff is very interesting. The the old ball players and the old language of the time period, from a journalistic standpoint, even from from how people talked. Um, and that's like one of my few advantages is that I have the ability to research, which most people do. They just don't want to bother because it's a lot of digging. But I think that you can take these old ball players and you can attach them to either a cultural significance or a historical significance of their time and make them representations of something that you can't always do in the present when every game is just attached to how much more likely is this team going to win a championship because of it. Um, and since winning, as stated from my Mariner fandom, has nothing to do with my love of baseball. I find that easier than trying to use baseball to optimize. Right. Well, I think we could say that while on a certain level, um, looking at analysis or considering analysis, um, whose main concern is uh, winning versus losing, that has its place. Um, there There are also definite instances where the the mind can be exercised um, by a consideration of the game um, that is not uh, that is not concern wins and losses. Is that an that idea? is my goal because I don't have any expertise in the in the realm of <laughs> in the first and thing. Okay, and it's easier <laughs> and it's easier to project uh, what some might call uh, flights of whimsy or other might call lies, damned lies. Uh, it's easier to project those onto players. That we sort of only faintly remember. Okay. Right. Okay. That's that's fair for me. But you can also do that with present players, and there's a lot of that that goes on at Nasdrafts as well. Um, and maybe that gets you into more trouble, or maybe it's um, not as easy. But uh, 
Hey, I'm just checking out um, Dazzy Vance's page at, at Fangraphs, and there's some other interesting things, which you probably know, Carson, um, that his career really didn't start until he was 31. Yes. Um, and he, he, he threw a couple innings when he was 24 and when he was 27, but, um, but yeah, it didn't, he didn't really start until he was 31, and then he played until he was 44. So that's sort of, you know, just an interesting tidbit to it. Well, I do know that uh, he was known as being a particularly hard thrower, uh, one with poor command. And yeah. um, another thing, I it's hard to say precisely what was wrong with him, um, but he was injured for most of his 20s. And oh. he, he got into – something happened, but it was like during a card game uh, – now I'm making this up a little bit, but there's a, there's some truth to it. During a card game, he went he reached for his chips after winning a big hand, and as he was bringing his chips back, he bumped his elbow on the table. And I think this was in New Orleans, and he happened to go to a doctor because of this ailment. After maybe having seen some other doctors because of other ailments, but in any case, they discovered some bone chips in his elbow, which were cleaned out, and after which. His arm felt like it hadn't felt for over 10, 12 years or something. Hmm. At which point, um, his velocity increased and his command inc- his command uh, uh, w- was better. And now, at 31-year-old, um, he became best pitcher in the league for, you know, better part of a decade. Right. Yeah, which is not a story that really could exist in our time, I guess. No, it it couldn't. I mean, I guess, I guess that makes it interesting. I uh, it, I, I think the the issue that you brought up, Carson, is something that I struggle with a lot too because I have a lot of friends who are into baseball, obviously, and a lot of them um, really appreciate from a historical standpoint. But I I generally don't. I mean, I I do enjoy reading um, about the past and, and looking at these old stats and sort of fabricating things in my head as well. But yeah, I'm I'm much more seduced about um, the constant contemporary changes. Uh, how it was mentioned earlier, how like a single win, especially at this point, the season can make you know a difference in the playoff races or what a team's farm system looks like and how that might alter their their roster for the following season. And that constant sort of turnover and lo- looking for those things and trying to predict those things it seems far more exciting to me than the dusty past. And so I was wondering, um, but, that, but that sort of made me think, and you, Carson, said that you spend a lot of time talking about, uh, or like trying to memorize names or look for names and add those to your, your human database. Uh, that makes you sound like a serial killer. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> or a human potential database. serial killer. <laughs> But I was wondering if you guys would answer a question for me, and that's, uh, what do your typical days look like? I imagine they'll be different because, well, I, don't, I guess I don't know what Patrick does other than, than write some kick-ass stuff at Notgrass. Uh, so, so what do you, what are your typical days like? How many hours, Carson, do you spend looking at various leaderboards or stat boards and, and adding these people to your, your mind grades? My, well, do, should we start with Patrick because we know even less about him? Okay, sure, yeah, that'd be great. Because I'm, I'm, I can answer the only answer the question only very poorly. Um, I actually just finished with grad school, uh, and so I'm in transition now. Uh, it's a, a nice euphemism for unemployed. But um, basically, I find that the more time I spend, the worse things are, um, and that really diminishing returns kicks in around. 20 or 30 minutes in. Uh, the more I try, the harder I work at trying to do something. And this this happened to me yesterday. I think I, I went through three articles before I finally picked one that I could actually live with. And that the more time I'm given, the more I end up just kind of using that time in self-destruction. You mean to write um, or to... You're talking about writing at this point. Just, well, writing and... I, the researching and the writing is kind of... Uh, on the same thing, I'll, I'll you know I'll lose myself down the rabbit hole of Twitter certainly sometimes, um, but for the most part, it's just kind of 
because I'm not as much of an analyst as you guys are, um, I just basically kind of wait and hope for ideas to pop up. And really, the research doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, I don't know. It's I might just be, uh, after yesterday's nine hours of fruitless you know, head banging on the on the table. Maybe I'm a little discontent with that right now. But it seems like I'm better off if I spend maybe half an hour getting highlights, looking at things. I watched the entire Orioles game yesterday, it was five and a half hours and the, I didn't again, I didn't really have a team to root for. But afterwards I felt like the five and a half hours was um, perhaps a bit much of an investment for the mm. result. Interesting. Uh, now, Abelman, I'm going to get to your question momentarily, but I do want to. Um, um, Patrick, you, you seem constantly and uh, acutely aware of your own limitations as a man and as a writer. Is that is it fair characterization? That's that's completely fair. Right, um, and uh, I think that um, your your personal feelings. And also that thing which you were just discussing, which is the ability to um, attribute to players in the past certain um, qualities that we can't attribute to players of the present because we have that complication of, um, you know, their like their skills, their talent, and like what they're producing in terms of wins. Um, um, th- these these uh, came to a, uh, a crossroads of sort, I think, um, in a recent piece you wrote. And I'm curious as to, to your thoughts on this characterization. Uh, you wrote a piece called uh, "Future Star uh, Future Stars of the Past" series one. Yes. Which you do these sort of uh, um, the marker, the sort of a like sharpie on clear plastic type drawing. The shrinky dinks, yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you said um, in that. So yeah, you have an image that you've I guess you've you've uh, created yourself. And then in addition to that, uh, you'll have some information both about the player and the card. You see, with regard to uh, Eric Anthony, um, who is uh, who was, I guess, a uh, prospect for the Houston Astros, very athletic, fast, uh, but did maybe uh, his career did not go very many places. Um, or it went a lot of places, um, but not um, to Major League Stardom was not one of them. Um, and you, you said with regard to uh, why we stopped being excited uh, about Eric Anthony, um, you said, as time passes, uh, we inevitably become known for what we can't do rather than what we can do. Well, thanks for putting out a typo there. Wow. I misspelled that. Yeah, you, well, I didn't – I actually – you just pointed it out. I actually saved yeah, you no, from I it. Yeah, no, I did. Yeah, yeah. I don't uh, going to go back and read it now. Uh, <laughs> Uh, let's see. As time passes, we inevitably uh, become known for what we can't do rather than what we can do. Um, you've phrased that as though it's a truth. It's not a truth. Um, I think it's. Uh, I think it's funny, but I don't think it's one that. It's not certainly something I would use to describe the direction in which my life is headed. So I'm curious. Okay. I'm curious as to whether you're talking about Eric Anthony, whether you're talking about Patrick Dubuque, or whether. You identify with Eric Anthony because you share this quality. Um, that's a good question. Um, it's probably. I mean, I'm, I would, as a writer, everything we write in some way reflects on ourselves. There's no getting around it. Um, and so yes, Eric Anthony is of course a mirror to myself. But we can't say that because then people will know I'm writing about me, and I'm far less of a to- an interesting topic than even Eric Anthony. We don't want. We can't. We we can't. Uh, we can't lift up the mirrors here. Um, I think part of it, of course, is is our empathy. We're always influenced by what we're reading. I've been reading Schopenhauer for the last month or so, and uh, he's not a, a good influence on one's sense of optimism. What is? Uh, can you? Is there sort of an abiding, or could you could you characterize his work in a briefly? Basically, Schopenhauer's. Schopenhauer's, uh, I'm, I'm going to reduce his philosophy more. It's all the Schopenhauer fans that are listening to the podcast are going to be terrified by my the scads, introduction here. The scads um, of Schopenhauer fans. Um, basically, the major tenets, at least the ones I got out of it, is that we all suffer 
the world is full of suffering, and that there's a you know a great line. I use one of my posts just as a quote, but uh, um, a quick test of the assertion that the enjoyment that enjoyment outweighs pain in this world, or at least that they're at any rate balanced, would be to compare the feelings of an animal engaged in eating with those of the one being eaten. Um, so that's Schopenhauer's take that, that basically we're born. Life is about suffering, and that suffering is good because. Without it, you couldn't appreciate the few moments of happiness that you actually do stumble on. Um, that would be the big part. And the other part is the uh, that we have to, because of this suffering, we have to have the will to overcome it by any means. Um, and he kind of starts that path towards Nietzsche, 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 about uh, the, the power of man to override nature and, and the forces against him. It's a, it's a downer. Are you reading Schopenhauer for leisure purposes? Uh, I suppose so, yes. Hmm. It seems hard to characterize that in retrospect, but but you know, no one is making me read Schopenhauer. Right, it's not an assigned. You're, you've decided to take no. the plunge into Schopenhauer. Is there a Schopenhauer text that you might suggest for anyone interested in that? Um, well, basically, I've got one here that's, that's uh, Penguin, Penguin Publishing has these ser- this series called Great Ideas, and they're kind of an encapsulation, uh, taking some of the best stuff out of people's work. And uh, they have one for Schopenhauer called On the Suffering of the World, and it's just basically snippets. Huh. Yeah. Well, there you there you go. There you go. Um, there you go, Penguin. Um, without segue, Bauman, I'll answer your question. Um, I'll tell you, um, the way I live my life on a daily basis is different than um, how I tell myself I live my life or how I tell myself I should live my life. Um, I, um, like I say, mostly um, and certainly since I've been writing about baseball full time, I am um, acutely aware of uh, the, the... the, the degree to which um, my name is invoked by other people, acutely and sadly aware, um, um, both, I mean, the frequency of it and also what I perceive as a as a, um, a lack of frequency relative to how often I'd prefer it were invoked, um, which is sad. I mean, it's, it's the saddest thing. Uh, I mean, I do other things during the day, um, that make me happy. Um, but, uh, yeah, because I directly tie it. To, so it's a concern, right? So this would happen when I was teaching, too. Uh, when I used to teach college, I would um, um, – I was always worried um, because um, inevitably while you're teaching college, you have people who are discontent with their position, and they'll come and talk to you. Uh, their grade, they'll come and talk to you about that. Um and uh, occasionally I would have students who would, uh, for example, go see the head of the department because they were upset with what was going on in class. Um, yes. This is not very frequent, but it would happen. Now, you've taught as well. Is that, isn't that right, Bellman? You've taught writing classes? I have, yeah. Yeah. And uh, there will always be students who are not content with what's going on. Um, and uh, that was very difficult. I was always under the impression that I was about to be fired. Um, and that condition persists into the present moment. Um, whether that's actually the case, um, I think it's probably not, but I assume I'm always about to be fired basically from whatever I'm doing. Yeah. Um, because I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I have um, um, a fear of, of ending up in a ditch, uh, penniless and without food, which is a, I mean, to an extent, that's a good fear to have because it... Uh, Moves you to action, um, but uh, yeah, I assume always that uh, that's the fate that will befall me next. Even though stepping back, I realize that um, um, even were I fired from both teaching and writing, I don't teach anymore. But if I were not able to get another teaching job and I were also fired from writing, I could probably do something. Um, you probably do something. I probably could do something. I probably get a job doing something. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. I could probably do something to prevent myself from starving to death. 
but yeah. in, in the moment that does not occur to me. So uh, I'm always concerned. How does that translate then how, into the actual hours per day spent? Um, or are you just are you just content to say that all hours of the day are uh, you know are under the cloud of this fear of being fired? Yeah, I mean it's not typically. I don't normally think of it like that. Like, uh, but I will like um, check uh, uh, check page page. I was talking about this Dania. I check page views of fan graphs to make sure that I don't have um, that. Like, none of my posts has zero page views because I assume that that would not appeal to Dave's Appleman and Cameron. If uh, like a post had zero. Hey Carson, just checking. Uh, looking at the page views today. It looks like looks like no one. Looks like no one has read any of your articles today. This cannot happen. This cannot continue. Um, yeah. So I assume that. I mean, I. Um, uh, I don't know how active I, th- I assume it, but yeah, I like. I'm convinced that that is an email I'm going. I'm about to get. Um, I also check my email constantly um, because I'm waiting for an email um, that assures me that. Um, um, I've achieved like a like I've achieved security, and I will not be worried for the a between. specific email. Like you're waiting for Dave Appleman to say, "Hi Carson, uh, we're giving you a raise, and we're giving you tenure as not drafts. It would have to be. You'll yeah, never the, be fired. <laughs> yeah, right. well, even tenure. No, like because tenure still necessitates that like that you show up. I think right. <laughs> like you like you can't just like be given tenure. Like at the University of Wisconsin here, and then just be like, "All right," um, and then just not show up to class. Like you will be fired then. Uh, yeah, right. So no, I'm looking for um, in uh, somewhere an anonymous donation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would take an anonymous <laughs> donation. Yeah, um, a a um, a wealthy relative that I didn't know about um, to. To do that, um, yeah, I look, yeah, that that interests me. Receiving that email, um, where it's like, oh, like it has come to our attention um, that, like, uh, so, oh yeah, I was gonna say, uh, Bertrand Russell talks in uh, one of his texts about a vagabond's wage, which he thought should be um, a thing, uh, an option that uh, citizens could have, which is you declare um, that you will not seek employment of any sort, or own capital of any sort, or produce anything of any sort. Um, in exchange for that declaration, um, you're entitled to um, a certain, essentially like welfare, um, a certain amount of dollars that can guarantee that you will that you will be able to live, uh, but do nothing more. So, so lighthousekeeping. What's that? Lighthousekeeping. Lighthousekeeping is that what that is basically? I guess you just. I, think, I would think so. Although it seems like. Lighthouse keeping, like, there are so, some consequences. Because, like, if you don't turn the light on and people start dying on the, on the, the like, the it ocean. It's like it's terribly easy to fulfill, though. Like, just write a few numbers down in a chart. Yeah, but um, it's the, the, you know, think of the, the, weather. the consequences are so dire, though. People, people's boats will crash on the rocks if you don't do your admittedly somewhat easy job. Don't you think? Yeah, I, I guess that I just assume there. I, maybe you know, I feel confident in my ability to turn the lights on. Although I'm not sure if I should, but you know that, that you basically work for 20 minutes a day, and then the other 23 and a half you can just spend reading Schopenhauer, and that, that seems fine. I mean, yeah, we all dream about that, right? No, not reading Schopenhauer. Not all, all probably day. not all of us. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then besides that, Bauman, um, I follow Twitter uh, too often. Oh, and I will do a thing frequently where I turn on uh, – I listen to comedy albums. I probably listen to comedy albums for like two or three hours a day. Wow. Yeah, uh, via Spotify. That explains so much. Yeah, via Spotify, I probably listen uh, – like I'll put on uh, John Mulaney Radio on uh, on Spotify and listen to that. Um, uh-huh. Occasionally, I will ignore my wife is something I do during the day. She'll <laughs> She'll suggest that I do something. I'll do my part for the relationship, and my part is approximately 10 to 15% of our relationship. Um, so I'll do my part. So, for example, um, put my underwear in the hamper 
is a task. So, yeah. And then the part where baseball comes in is uh, – and this is essentially like where the Daily Notes, like the reason for its genesis was so I would know what to watch in the day. And then uh, at some point I will I will watch uh, – if there's a watchable game on, I will usually watch it and I usually just watch the part of the game where the starter in whom I'm interested is pitching. So like, for example – like Andrew Werner is pitching this weekend. I really want to watch Andrew Werner pitch. So I watch Andrew Werner's half of the start, um, unless he happens to be going against someone else that's interesting. Like, for example, uh, uh, who else is interesting? Like Max Scherzer. If there was a San Diego Padres-Tigers game and Max Scherzer and Andrew Werner were facing each other, I would watch that game. Um and I would, uh, but if it's just Andrew Werner, I fast forward the other half inning, and then I'll just watch the Andrew Werner part. So you watch them all? You watch this all after they're completed, then, or after they've started, anyway? Mostly, there are very, yeah, there are very few games I'll watch in real time, or I'll just have it on in the background um, as sort of background noise. Uh, yeah. But yeah, like an Andrew Werner start. Like I actually sat down to watch Max Scherzer pitch the other day. He is really the only pitcher right now that I sit down to watch. Um, and I sort of survived to the other half inning, or maybe there's another game that's, that was going on earlier. So like um, this this past uh, uh, was it a couple days ago, Scherzer pitched, and an hour before that was the Mets game, and Matt Harvey pitched in that game. Um, and Matt Harvey is another pitcher uh, whose performances of of late I'm very interested. Um, and, Matt, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and actually watching Matt Harvey pitch at home is particularly um, – uh, um, not at my home, at, uh, at City Field uh, – is, is particularly nice right now because um, the while the Mets do not utilize a straight-on center field camera, they have a, they do for their slow motion, which is actually all I care about. Um, so you can watch – or which is mostly what I care about, I should say. So their slow motion footage is both extra slow and straight on, uh, and that makes for, um, among other things, particularly good gifts. So um, I like watching Matt Harvey. But, yeah, Max Scherzer is the only pitcher I sit down for at this point. I, w- I, I took the opportunity um, when, you were, when you were talking about teaching to uh, enter your name into uh, a database with which you might be familiar that's called Rate My Professors. Yeah. <laughs> and I found, I found one, Carson Sestouli. And Carson, you probably looked at this because, as you said, you're obsessed with of looking at how your uh, how the Internet um, reaffirms your existence and in what ways it does so. Yeah. But uh, but you received very good ratings, and you even got a chili pepper for hotness. Multiple chili peppers. Yeah, if actually multiple being, chili peppers. Yeah, if you're being clear about it, multiple chili peppers, yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, I, uh, I don't think I got... I, I think one chili pepper was given to me, ironically. Um, and beyond that, I did get decent scores as a teacher, but overall you are a 4.5 out of a 5. Yeah. And you're pictured here wearing a, a green baseball sweater with a teddy bear, yeah. uh, with a brown teddy bear. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> Yeah. It's, a, it's, <laughs> it's a, quite it's amusing. A, it's a sweater that makes me look um, like an autistic adult. I think it's fair to say. Um, because okay. it's, a, it's a giant teddy bear uh, holding a baseball bat, and yeah. it's a bright green. It's a bright green sweater. Yep. Yeah, and uh, I actually, um, I actually, uh, for reasons that I don't, I can't entirely explain, I will begin to act slightly autistic while I'm wearing it. Um, <laughs> it has that effect. It has because it it's um, it has a uh, an, an, a sort of innocent quality to it that I think is. Uh, Rightly or wrongly ascribed to autistic people. So should we assume you're wearing a sweater right now? No, you shouldn't. No, I'm okay. wearing a. Where is that? I'm wearing. I'm wearing an adult. I'm somewhere dressed up. I wore my tie. I'm wearing an adult shirt. I'm wearing a gentleman's shirt right now. You um, seem very gentlemanly. I try to. Um, I wish I had a greater capacity for the language of 19th century. Uh, American aristocracy, or uh, the what is also known as the, the, the would be the vernacular of the British or the Boston Brahmin. Boston Brahmin is like a class of Bostonian. Uh, 
that I guess was, I don't know when the, the term was coined, but say mid, mid 19th century to, uh, to early, uh, early 20th century. So like if you guys have ever heard a reading of E. e. Cummings or T.S. Eliot, um, it's that voice. It's the transatlantic voice. It's also not dissimilar from maybe what like, um, W.C. Fields, like that sort of voice too, a version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, where were, what were we doing? I don't know, I think we're at the end. Are we at the end? We, I think we reached the end of that particular parenthetical mm-hmm. reference. Right. Um, yeah, no, I did have a, a couple other things. We, I actually have a, uh, another meeting besides this Nautograph staff meeting, um, which we should reiterate is a, uh, is a, uh, an experiment. Sam? Yeah. Oh, and yeah, and a shame. And a shame. Right. Are we um, the part where we, uh, oh, weren't we going to, like, go down the author list and, like, ask questions about people that we have no idea who they are or something? Right. Well, let's do, so we, uh, we need to do that. you can ask one, qu- yeah, let's do that, uh, one of those, and then I just have one last question and then we can be done. Is there anyone about whom you were curious? No, I don't think so, actually. Oh, okay. Hey, Bethany yeah. Peck, is, she does the ESIS League stuff, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Oh, but she she only, she hasn't posted since February 2011. Right, that was a while ago. Yeah, a year and a half yeah. ago at this point. Yeah, she did a couple of posts. She was going to do some graphic stuff, but she became too busy, as people do. Yes. Patrick, did you have a question about anyone? I don't want to, you know, I was, I'm always afraid that it's going to descend into some sort of... Um, you know, like sorted gossip, but um, I don't know. I mean, not really. No. Okay. Uh, so here's no. the last thing. Uh, is there anything about uh, this? Could, you could take this in whatever spirit you care to, whatever is uh, more pleasant for you. Is there anything about the editorial process uh, um, that could be improved upon, or um, were I to struggle to avoid ending that sentence with a preposition. Is there anything about the editorial process upon which could be approved? Improved. Are those two separate questions? <laughs> the uh, Yeah. So is there anything about the editorial process that could be improved upon or actually that's that's working particularly well? This is a this is a, this is a borderline legitimate staff meeting style question. So we have an editorial process. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, by default, if nothing else, um, one is left to one's own devices generally. I know. I tend to actually think of the. Uh, I tend to think of the uh, the commenters as the editorial. <laughs> you write the post, and and with comedy, you never really know. I mean, you, you have a feeling whether something's funny. Yeah, but then you really don't know until you post it, and then you find out two hours later what you should have posted instead. And usually the commenters will help that along through their engaging and thoughtful advice. I will say, uh, or, or lack thereof. I've said this before. I, generally speaking, the commenters or knockoffs are uh, a band apart from the normal internet commenter. They are. Yeah, we're very lucky. We're very fortunate. Mm-hmm. Um. But I don't know. I don't know. Does, does, I'm not sure if editorial processes can work with comedy in general. Can can that? I guess maybe when people work in teams and they can review each other's material. I don't work with other people. Well, at this um, point, the editorial process basically you just post whenever, like when you have a basic slot. People should know this. You're assigned a general slot. I, I think that uh, both of you miss it sometimes or post later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's very little oversight, I would say, generally, um, so far as that's concerned. Um, and right, you, I guess in terms of reacting to or responding to an audience, that that's facilitated by by the the commentary. Although, who knows how many actually people? I mean, who is what percent of the actual readership the commentary represents? Commentary. Yeah, the silent disgust could be, you know. It could be an overwhelming majority. Right, and I actually... There's no way to know. And, it, and I trust you, Patrick, to assume that it would be discussed, as opposed to... Agreed. Uh, as opposed to assent a, a, a to, to what's been written. Assent, uh, mild amusement, and then moving on, which is probably, for anyone who comes to it, the uh, the general thing. 
Do you think there's a correlation between quality and extent and uh, quantity of readership? The quality, the quality of the piece you've written, and the uh, quantity of people who either comment upon it or read it. Well, Schopenhauer sure doesn't think so. <laughs> he uh, he didn't care much for the unwashed masses, although he obviously didn't have the knockgrass commenters to uh, no, he didn't to support him. I think he'd probably be a much better adjusted person if he had. Um, I think the one thing that actually he talks about, and I think this is a very interesting idea, and something I probably shouldn't give away by talking about it now, if only, only five people were listening. Um, he says, I wish someday someone would attempt a tragic history of literature, showing how the various nations which now take their highest pride in the great writers and artists they show, treated them while they were still alive. And so, um, I'm not sure if that that vilification of people who want to change things takes place quite as much in our realm as, say, in average literature. Um, you know, the, the disdain that Bukowski or Kerouac or, or, or those type of authors receives when they try to do something that isn't the accepted norm. It's obviously there. The, the society is in some way, in their taste, somewhat conservative. Um but you do have to wonder when sometimes people are trying things, the experimentation, um, that sometimes because it's not what a readership expects, that sometimes their reaction cannot be how it might end up being later once that once those experiments have been continued and have gone mainstream. I can't think of any examples right now. So but, so is the solution to write so you're saying there's a different the the audience in the future is different than the one in the present? Sometimes you have to make them like what you write by doing it over and over again until they get used to it. Oh, that's I'm not sure if that's true, but it's certainly an interesting theory. I know you've been there, Carson. That's that's how this whole thing started, right? How what whole thing started? Not grass. Isn't it basically? You know, when you first started writing, your style of writing was just basically completely different from what most Fangraphs readers were expecting, and so. Yeah. Would you say that's how Nagras was created? Uh, well, I think it was partly. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think. Uh, I mean, it wasn't. It was like a year and a half after I joined the site, but I think, or maybe, yeah, about that maybe. Um, but um, yeah, it was to put things that might make sense there, but also to sort of uh, and, and to develop that and to maybe find like-minded people because it was clear, and also it it, it had the. Uh, side effect, which was probably a primary effect for Appleman, of clearing the main page of that sort of thing, uh, and letting people seek it out as opposed to having uh, to being uh, confronted with it. But we've also created the brand, and so I think the people are more likely to seek it now that it's an actual thing, rather than just a uh, an accident. Yeah. On the main page. That's one opinion that people could have. Okay. <laughs> oh, wait, do we, we ask this question of Bauman? Wait, what was the question? Bauman. Oh, yeah, editorial process. Editorial process. I, I, I would. What, what is the what is the editorial goal? Like, as an editor of Not Drafts, what what are you looking for out of your out of your writers? Um, is is it page hits? Do you look at other people's page hits and think, uh, boy, this person's page hits are anemic? No, I don't look at them at all. That's good. No, no, I don't. I look for things that are amusing, and which is um, no, I don't be. I don't. I'm not saying that I, I employ reason when I look at my own, when I when I uh, covet and obsess over my own page views because that's not the sort of reader that that disgusts me. It's disgusting behavior. It's <laughs> it's regrettable, and that's not the sort of thing that I'd want anyone who writes for Knockrafts to be considering. Um, I would want you to write for the best possible version of yourself. You know, you're gonna make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To be fair, though, you have a really a, a hair trigger uh, as, as far as crying is concerned. You can you can be frequently found weeping in your Milwaukee area home. <laughs> that's uh, that's accurate. That is accurate. <laughs> Um, but nonetheless, I, I guess I just, 
I've I've thought about that, and uh, no, I I think you're you're a very encouraging editor, Carson, and I really appreciate it. I really appreciate working with you. Well, I should be making some. I should be making some joke right now, but uh, but I'm not. Like I did, yeah, yeah, like you, like Dubuque did. No, I understand uh, uh, sincerity. Uh, you're prone to sincerities, Bauman. I understand that about you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's not a compliment necessarily. I'm saying it's a fact. But it's a thing that... I only meant thank you for noticing. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't mean thank you for the compliment. Yeah, well, there you are. Uh, yes, you are prone to sincerities, just like in the same way that Patrick Dubuque is prone to... to uh, defense mechanisms. Yeah, defense mechanisms and uh, protracted self self uh, disgust. And acute uh, awareness of his own limitations as a human. Should I keep going on? I, I described you as the Eeyore of Notgraphs the other day. Is that fair? That's probably pretty fair. I, you know, if we'd done the podcast, you asked me to do it a year ago, and I declined because I was, um, well, afraid. But I think that perhaps if we'd done it then, that, that maybe my reputation would have been somewhat different. I was full of hope back then. That was while I was still in grad school and therefore didn't have any actual social responsibilities besides grades, which right. were meaningless. So, right. so we'll see. But you are actually, I, I should know, I mean, in terms of responsibilities, you are, uh, you're, you're a married gentleman, isn't that right? I am. You are. Do you have, uh, do you have any spawn? Not yet. Okay. Um, yeah. Because that would be truly frightening. <laughs> I mean, yeah, not, the not for the public. Have to come first. Right, not for the public, but for you, because right. that—that's when it starts to become a real thing, right? Because your wife can leave you, um, and uh, that you would just be left. But if there's a child involved, that you uh, would you would be secretly, well, I mean, you would be not so secretly uh, um, endangering that child as well. Well, the terrifying thing is when I start teaching myself, because I'm going to be teaching high school. Right. Um, fortunately, I chose high school and not elementary school because I think I realized deep down that I needed to at least interact with the student base that was already as uh, hardened and bitter as possible. And jaded, jaded as you. <laughs> Pretty much. Are you are you are you comfortable with the fact that they that there's a that your students may not listen to some of your students at least will not listen to one word you're saying as you're talking? Um. Yeah, no, I'm fine with that. Okay. Um, I try as a teacher to make the student the center of their own education because I remember being a teenager and how important I was to myself back then. Mm, yes. And so that's kind of my goal uh, is to step back because I know they're to entertain, but uh, I can't help it. Sometimes I try to entertain anyway because jokes are fun. Right. Yeah, it's it's hard though, because uh, I did some writers in the school stuff with in Portland high schools, and uh, I mean every class has its own personality, but sometimes it is very difficult. Even even when you go when you go in there with the best intentions, uh, that age group, that age of student, can be very suspicious about about what you're about to do, or just not, or or have already decided that you that you and that you are have been designed to make their life more boring than it was. To bore them to death, and to a certain extent, that's very true. Yeah. So, well, you are tasked. You're tasked by local government to bore them. <clears throat> uh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, this is. Uh, I'm going to uh, um, officially adjourn this meeting. Um, I think it's been moderately successful. Uh, I think that a certain type of listener will regard it as. Uh, at this point, we've been recording for an hour and a quarter. Um, that length of time of. Uh, I think uh, grotesque navel gazing. Um, <laughs> and oversharing. Yeah, I think another type of listener uh, will appreciate the the candor with which uh, some of us have spoken. Um, I think probably the the most frequently occurring sort of listener um, is not listening. <laughs> that is a person <laughs> who is not who is not didn't even push play to start with. Uh, is not even aware of the existence of this thing, this document we've made. Um, Epictetus uh, says uh, in the Enchiridion, um, do not be disturbed by this sort of thought, and this is the sort of thought he means. Uh, I am a, I will live a life, I'm going to live a life of no distinction, and nobody 
in complete obscurity. And uh, I, I would advise all three of us not to be disturbed by that sort of thought because uh, um, it's probably closest closest thing to the truth that we could formulate in words. True? True. All else is vanity. Yeah, all right. See money speaks truth. Yes, there it is, or at least uh, epic test. Anyways, guys, uh, it has been a privilege for me to talk to you. Um, let's, uh, uh, because again, I'm uh, lonely and um, left to my own devices, uh, doing nothing of any good. And uh, you guys are uh, rewarding as interlocutors. So I appreciate you joining me. Thanks for well. Yeah, all right. Well, cool. Um, I'm going to hit stop on the record, and then uh, we'll have some brief adult conversation, and then I have to eat lunch and attend another meeting. All right. Okay, so that is Patrick Dubuque coming to us from uh, the Seattle metro area. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Carson. Okay, that is uh, Robert J. Bauman uh, coming to us from the Milwaukee metro area. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Carson. Okay, I'm Carson Sestouli, and I'll continue to be Carson Sestouli, and this has been... Uh, a navel gazing, a grotesque navel gazing episode of Fangraphs Audio. Well, that was when someone turned out the lights. And I wound up in jail, spend the night. And dream of all the wine and lonely girls. In this best of all possible worlds. Well, I woke up next morning feeling like my head was gone And like my thick old tongue was licking something sick and wrong And I told that man I'd sell my soul Something wet and cold is that old cell That kindly jailer grinned at me All eating up his sympathy Then poured himself another beer And came and whispered in my ear If booze was just a dime a bottle Boy, you couldn't even buy the smell I said I knew there was something I liked about this town But it takes more than that to bring me down, down, down Cause there's still a lot of wine and lonely girls in this best of all possible worlds Well, they finally came and told me They wasn't gonna set me free And I'd be leaving town if I knew what was good for me I said it's nice to learn that everybody's so concerned about my health I said I won't be leaving no more quicker than I can Cause I've enjoyed about as much of this as I can stand And I don't need this town of yours more than I never needed nothing else Cause there's still a lot of drinks that I ain't drunk Lots of pretty thoughts that I ain't fucked, oh yeah Lord, there's still so many lonely girls in this best of all possible worlds.